Welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. Uh, my name's Phil Topham, Executive Director of the FIEC, and it's time to do our regular uh, dive into the news stories uh, of the week. Uh, with me uh, today is John Stevens, our National Director. Morning, John. Good morning, Phil. And Adrian Reynolds, our Head of National Ministries. Hello, Adrian. Hello. Oh, I thought you weren't going to be there. Adrian is actually here, as you can see in the video. It sounded like there was a delay on the line, but then here he is. Uh, one place to start this week, uh, I think, brothers, uh, which is about what's been going on in, in Parliament. It's just seemed extraordinary to watch. Uh, finally, the, the, the number of uh, people writing letters uh, to the chair of the 1922 Committee of the Conservative Party was reached uh, and a vote uh, of confidence in Boris Johnson's leadership happened earlier in the week. Uh, it's a vote that he won, but perhaps not by uh, the, the majority he would have wanted. What are, what are we to make of what's going on uh, in Parliament? Adrian, I'm going to start with you. Well, try and stay off politics, shall we? Well, I think we can. Tr- I think we can talk about big principles. Yeah. I mean, the political sphere is bonkers, but I think we it can is. talk about big principles. I think. Um, I mean, the key thing really for leadership is that you have to enjoy trust to lead well. Mm. I think, and um, I think that's true in the Conservative Party, in the House of Commons, or any party leading um, government. When it comes around to a general election, that's essentially what's being tested. I think. Do you trust um, the person yes, who you're not, voting for? Well, and do you yeah. trust them? Do you trust their policies mm. and, and you know to, to deliver on the things they're saying? Um, and actually, a vote is a measure of that trust. And I think it's quite important to keep remembering that that we tend to reduce votes down, especially in Parliament in this last week, to, to numbers and you know have you reached the threshold and those kinds of questions. But actually, votes like that are designed, I think, to give an indication of the measure of trust. Mm. And so um, we mustn't lose sight of that. Now, you might, you and I might have different views on whether um, that is that sufficient. The threshold was passed on Monday is sufficient. Whether you know having 148 votes is enough against you to to say I can still go on with trust. I don't know, but um, I think in church, just to translate it into church life, churches often have thresholds for voting, mm. for example, for well, leaders, particularly for people coming in, don't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. it would be a two thirds um, at least majority. Well, it, it, it would yeah. vary from church yeah, to church. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think actually the key thing is: do you have the trust? Do the church trust you? And that's the ongoing relationship actually between the leaders and the congregation, and even amongst leaders themselves. And one measure of a breakdown of trust might be you don't get a sufficient vote. Um, But actually, I I think leaders should be constantly asking, how do we build trust? Mm. And do I have the trust of people? And it seems to me those are the presenting questions. And and voting is one way of measuring that. But there are other ways of measuring it too. And I I think it's a moot point whether um, Boris Johnson has a trust either of the party or the country. I guess that's going to get tested in some of the um, the by-elections. But, but I think it is important for leaders to think through. And just because you've passed a threshold, I don't think that necessarily means you've, you've got trust. I, personally, if the, if the threshold was two-thirds of voting for a pastor to come into a church and, and you got 67%, I don't think I'd want to go and be a pastor of a church where mm. 33% of the church didn't want me to be the pastor. That mm. seems to me to, to not be a great kind of position of trust to, to begin with. Uh, John, he's carrying on. He, he's continuing w- with his his leadership on the back of all the the, the numbers and uh, and that trust issue, as, as Adrian has, has highlighted. Is that is that the right thing to do? Well, I think it is extraordinary that he seems to have sort of, in a sense, in a relatively short period, having won a, a sort of a landslide majority to have lost what seems like the support of a very large section of, of his party. And he's clearly decided that he's not going to step down. I think his character and his life story would suggest that he's not going to step down. He made clear that that would be the case. He can cling on. He had said that even if he got a single vote in favour, he would stick in and he's attempting to relaunch himself uh, and rebuild himself. Um, I, I think that anybody in that situation where they've lost, they've lost that degree of trust, 
Um, in the end, if you're going to go to the electorate, it's going to be very difficult when a third of your party doesn't think that you should be the leader to persuade the nation um, that, that they should support you. Third of your MPs, um, not necessarily a third of the party, is it? Your, so, third of your MPs. I mean, that may be, um, so that's that's the complication. There are all these different levels yeah, yeah. that it's, it's working at, isn't it? But yeah. I, I think it's hard. I, I would find it very hard to know how you could carry on leading in, in, those, uh, in that context. And history would suggest, and it's been said a number of times, that where a leader of the party has lost a confidence vote, um, inevitably, they are removed from their position within a period of time, whether it be a year, whether it be six months. The vote against Boris was e- even greater than the vote that was against sort of Theresa May. Um, so, I mean, I think as, as a leader, particularly if you're in a church context, if you've lost that degree of the support of, of your congregation and the people who have put you into your position, I would have thought as a matter of honour, it's very difficult for you to continue um, leading um, when you have effectively a a third of the body of the people not wanting you to exercise that position. I mean, it might depend what the issue is. So if, for example, that's in church life over a theological issue in which it's to do with faithfulness for the gospel and some of the congregation take a different view. So say a third of your congregation wanted to to remove you because you opposed same-sex relationships, then of course it's right to keep going. But um, in, in other areas, if you've simply lost the confidence for your leadership in your ministry, then I think it's very difficult. And it's not actually helpful either to yourself or to the church or for its future to do that. And I think, I think this particular thing with Boris, one thing he did was he, he has held together a very broad coalition of people with very diverse views. So the party elected him with really one single objective of getting Brexit done and sorting out the situation there. And what he did was bring together a coalition of people from different um, ends of the party with different views, different economic philosophies. What's striking about the sort of, in a sense, the vote against him is that that, that people have voted against him for all sorts of different reasons. Some because they don't think he's right wing enough, others because of issues of character, others because of parties. And it's not a coordinated campaign. I think there's a lesson for that actually in church leadership. I think sometimes there are church leaders who lead congregations by force of personality and don't deal with all the difficult, um, different ideological, theological perspectives that they are. They can hold together a congregation with a very wide diversity of different views on a whole variety of issues, uh, simply by being the unifying individual. But what actually happens is where confidence is lost, all of those issues erupt to the the surface. Mm. Because they haven't been dealt with, they can lead to significant division. So I think there's a a lesson of the challenge there of, of... basically building a coalition around a single issue or around a, a charismatic individual, but not actually dealing with the fundamental kind of ideological and theological issues um, that are vitally important. He is supremely self-confident, Boris. Well, well he is. In, in contrast to Theresa May, I think. Well, I th- a part of the challenges, and maybe we'll talk about this later when it comes to the Queen, is um, how much do we really know these people? Mm. So I, I think um, all, all our views of Boris Johnson, Carrie, um, you know, even Dominic, dear Dominic, much departed, much <laughs> lamented. Um, you know, all, all these sort of characters at the heart of government, they're all mediated to us mm. through media, through spokespeople. We don't really know them. We don't really know what they're like. You, you get occasional insights into various things that go on. But it's interesting how much we think we have handle on the Queen, for example, or on Boris. And, and actually, we don't really know them. Mm. And, and I think that's one of the challenges we have in forming judgments about them. I must tell you my famous fa- favourite Boris moment this week, though. Oh, I, I, uh, did you meet him? No, no, I didn't meet him. But um, there, there's, been a, there's been a thing about what presents have people bought over the years for monarchs mm. as part of the Jubilee. And um, some scorn given to Lord Salisbury, 
back in the 19th century who sent Queen Victoria to celebrate her jubilee a portrait of himself <laughs> which seems extraordinary really and um, just a comment I read this morning even in the paper saying well at least um, Boris didn't do that but of course he did because they bought a music box the cabinet for the um, for the Queen and inscribed on the uh, this music box was a, it was a picture of number 10 on the front and then portraits of all the Prime Ministers she had served with around the outside including Boris so of course the Queen did get a portrait of Boris, which I think is just a lovely moment. Excellent. Yes. It, 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 watch for it on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the Queen using eBay. I like that very much. Um, I just think as we reflect on this from a Christian perspective, we need to remember the sovereignty of God. Mm. Um, Boris is still Prime Minister. We trust that God has sovereignly caused that to happen. And uh, whatever we might feel, um, and in all this kind of media discussion, um, we need to remember that we ought to be praying for him as mm. the one that God has put in the position of ruling over the nation at this time. Um, that we're commanded to do that, to yeah. pray that he would govern well, to pray that he would um, do justice, that he would maintain peace, that he maintain civil, civil liberty, religious freedom. Um, all of those things are crucially important. And I think um, it, we, we shouldn't as Christians forget that responsibility to be praying um, for those that have been raised up to um, to this position. And I think at a, at a human level, um, I, I can't imagine the pressures and stresses that are on Boris mm. Johnson in, in, that, in that role at a, at a, at a human um, perspective. Um, it must be humbling, frustrating um, to have to face a vote, a vote like that. Maybe it's also a moment to be praying that God do, would do a work of grace in him, mm. that in a, in a moment of perhaps personal weakness and reflection, that is when um, gospel truth that he has heard from a number of people um, over the years might perhaps penetrate. So I think it's important for us to pray for that. We were thinking, I was thinking um, about kind of 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and praying for rulers and those in authority. And I was struck that um, in that context of, of 1 Timothy, that is the corporate prayer of the church. It's not just individual, but it's mm. when you come together, yep. pray for kings, rulers, and all in authority. And I think it's absolutely right that in our churches, in our church services, in our church prayer meetings, we are praying for those that God has raised up in authority, that they would be mm. um, sort of used of him um, in the right way. For, for one last thought on that as well is that I think we haven't really talked about how you build trust. Mm. So I think um, it's really important as church leaders that we find ways to nurture and cultivate um, trust with our congregations and with fellow leaders. And I think actually, um, in, in that sense, Boris's congregation are the MPs. Mm. You know, they were the ones who were voting for him. And, and one of the most um, uh, striking things, I think, was was an MP saying this week, he doesn't really care about Parliament and about the Parliamentary Party. He's just he's concerned about the electorate. Um, and at one level, that is the relationship of trust that does exist when it comes around to a general election. But actually, in, in terms of the ongoing relationship, it is a, it is about engendering trust with his MPs, which clearly he's, he's not done that well. And I think as leaders in churches, we need to be thinking, how do you build trust with mm -hmm. congregations? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that, I think, is it's always relational. Um, so I think you see that, especially in 1 Thessalonians, where that Paul is is with people and amongst people, sharing his, his life with people. That's what builds trust, even though he was with them only a very short period of time. So, so I think we mustn't underestimate the value of leaders spending time with each other, leaders spending time with people in their church. Just as people, not as leaders, but but as as fellow Christians, as brothers and sisters, hanging out with them, doing life with them, all those sorts of things. I, I think those things are really critical, mm. so that actually people in the church see you as as a believer first, yeah. rather than any sort of leadership position that you uh, hold. And accessibility is important there, isn't it? That you're accessible to your people. Yeah, in in I mean, you've got to you've got to just flex that in terms of how the size of the church yeah, works yeah, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. But yeah. Mm. 
I guess a parallel with that for the church would be um, the, the minister or the pastor or elders who are only really concerned with the outsiders in evangelism, but not actually concerned with their core congregation and building their relationships with them. You can sort of, in a sense, have a perspective that sort of doesn't see the massive importance mm. of caring for the congregation as well as mm. reaching the, the wider audience outside. And it's not one at the expense of the Absolutely. other. You've got to bring them together right, and, and yeah. balance them, haven't you? One of the ways the prime minister is trying to kind of restart his uh, his prime ministerial career this week, he gave a big speech uh, early on in the week. In Blackpool, in Blackpool, in Blackpool. Which, which is uh, as an aside where we're going for the Seventh leaders' conference. Seventh to the ninth of November. Uh, do book uh, online. First of July is the deadline for the early bird. Uh, One hundred ninety-five pounds. Uh, but he was speaking in Blackpool, and, and he, he there's some fascinating headlines. As we're kind of used to from Mr. Johnson, we, we get sort of good headlines. It remains to be seen how uh, that tran- transfers into into policy. But a couple of really interesting things about social mobility in there, particularly struck by the idea that those who are uh, receiving benefits and in work could put those benefits towards a mortgage and get on the housing ladder, almost kickstarting the right to buy scheme. At one level, that sounds like a, a, a great thing. So he's, be- he's begun to do some of that work. And that's not the only thing we've heard this week about social mobility. So the social mobility czar, uh, Catherine uh, Burblesing, um, she was criticised for making some comments about about education, particularly um, suggesting that that those who are um, from from more working class backgrounds shouldn't aim as high as Oxford or Cambridge. Or that's how she was interpreted. I think it was a bit more nuanced than that. She was just talking about people aiming higher than where they were and not necessarily having the rags to riches of of working class to, to Oxbridge. There's been a lot of criticism about that. We we seem to have on the one hand the government saying it's all about leveling up, it's all about social mobility going in an upward direction. Direction, but that's not the reality necessarily for people uh, on the ground. How do we respond to that, John? Well, I think it's good that the government is thinking about this issue of social mobility and we want to be in a society in which people have the opportunity to improve their lives, to be able to succeed, to, to be able to gain access to greater economic wealth, greater freedom, uh, ownership of homes. Um, and it, it's important. And I think there's lots of studies that have suggested that in Britain, social mobility has become kind of restricted. Um, I mean, in the last century, there have been some remarkable periods of social mobility. I'm reading a biography of Clem Attlee at the moment and the kind of Labour government post Second World War kind of um, introduced measures that led to a massive amount of social mobility and mm. the, the class structure no longer inhibited people in the way that it had done. And my, my own family benefited hugely from that. My kind of grandparents were kind of working class. Their children were able to gain the benefits of education. Um, I've benefited from that over a number of generations of social mobility. Um, and I think um, it's been recognised that, that that social mobility to some extent has um, not been as open in, in the kind of recent decades as, as, it, as it had been in the past. And um, that's led to divisions within the country, that's led to divisions between different regions in the country, and that's top of the agenda of what needs to be uh, kind of addressed. From a Christian perspective, that's obviously um, what we expect to be seeing worked out in the church. The kind of church is a community in which people, um, as they live under the gospel, as they change their lives, have that opportunity to be able to live differently, to be able to grow, to be able to advance themselves. And um, that's been a huge aspect of a kind of the life of the church. And it's very often it's been Christians who've been at the forefront of wanting to argue that society needs to change. I'm also reading a book by Simon Heffer on the kind of Victorians called High Minds. And I've just been so struck by how in the 1830s and 1840s, the conditions in in, in England were just simply awful for mm. the working class, appalling poverty, appalling factory conditions, appalling uh, kind of wages, starvation. Um, and actually, it was Christians who were at the forefront of saying society cannot be like that anymore. Yeah. We need to introduce state measures that improve people's lives. And it was things like the Factory Acts that um, uh, began to improve people's conditions. And then the support and introduction of mass education that enabled people to be able to uh, to improve. So Christians have historically had a 
um, a, a very significant role to play in advocating for a social mobility that enables people to um, change their lives and escape from the strictures of, of poverty. So I think that's got to be a good thing. Whether the particular measures that are proposed will achieve that is, is a different question. It's interesting, isn't it, Adrian, that there seems to have been during certainly the years of the pandemic, it, it has seemed to us looking in from the outside that the rich have been getting richer and it's been much harder for those on, on lower incomes. Uh, how can the church help with, with, with that kind of um, um, area? I, I too have been reading a book. It's a trashy holiday novel. <laughs> it, has, it has no insight whatsoever to give to this discussion. I just thought I'd mention that I- You've read a book. I, I have read a book. So John's reading two books. You're reading yeah, one I'm book. I'm reading a trashy novel. Yeah. And, uh, I'll say nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. say nothing. Um, I think one of the things we need to do is, first of all, we, we need to set our own socioeconomic status in a worldwide context. Mm, so helpful. the West yeah. is extraordinarily rich, and um, even the, the poorest in the UK are relatively well off compared to other parts of the world. Now, that's not to minimise the the difficulty of living actually in a very developed country with very little yeah, income. It's yeah. very, very difficult to do. Um, and I, I think the church has always been at the forefront of helping people who are um, is, is struggling in that way. And, and it has been interesting, actually, just going around um, post-COVID, doing some of the local conferences that I've done and hearing how um, CAP projects, for example, or mm. food banks mm. being run by churches are increasingly providing ways of connection with the, with the local community. But th- there should be kindness and care and compassion in churches. And I think one of the challenges for us as churches is is very often that um, if you're a church in an affluent area, you are somewhat removed from some of the pressures. Mm. And now every area has its poorer parts, but some places are particularly deprived. And I think we do need to keep thinking and working hard about how um, we, we level up within the church, yeah. actually, and how there is a there's a fairness and a kindness and a generosity about supporting others um, who are in, in less well-off places. So I was yesterday in, in Liverpool for a local conference, um, just over 50 leaders there, some of them working in very, very difficult places. And and one of the things that they're saying is we, we just, we need help. We need financial help. We need people help. We need resources in order to serve people. So so I think we, we can mirror what the government are trying to do. Um, and we've, we've got a better, even a better cause for doing it. But just coming back to the um, the uh, social mobility side, I think the rags to riches thing is interesting. So her, her big thing was um, we mustn't, we mustn't hold up the rags to riches story as the kind of the, the standard paradigm yeah. that everyone's heading for because everybody can't go from rags to riches. Mm. And I think we do live in a world where we glamorise that. Mm. Um, so, you know, whether it's the lottery win, I, I, just, I was amused to see that the people who won £140 million on the lottery a few weeks ago have just bought a second-hand Volvo. It's, sort of, it's just, you know... Good for them. It, it sort of made me feel a bit better. But, you know, those are the stories that get glamorised, aren't they? Or, the, you know, the social media influencer who's done really well or the footballer who's on 400000 a week. So, so I, I think we're not helped by a culture which glamorises rags to riches. And, and we do need to say that we do not want to say that's not normal, except that spiritually that is the gospel. Huh. So we've we've yeah. got this kind of we have this tension, don't that we, we we live in a world which is it can't all be rags to riches, it just can't physically, and yet spiritually we have this experience which is rags to riches, mm-hmm. and actually which promises riches um, in the next life beyond measure and um, imagining really from from death to life. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary juxtaposition, and in and in providing help, we mustn't lose sight of actually we have got good news mm-hmm. to proclaim. 
I think it's worth noting that in the New Testament, there's a story of from riches to giving up riches for those who are touched by the gospel. So mm. again, we can assume social mobility is a one-way sort of travel of improvement in economic circumstances and gaining of status. But when Jesus calls people to follow him, they give up things that they have in this world. So I think of the disciples giving up their fishing business to follow Jesus. One can think of the rich young ruler who was challenged to give up his wealth and his status and his position to gain eternal life, but he wouldn't do that because it was too costly. Think about somebody like Zacchaeus mm. who gave up half his wealth to the poor. Think of someone like Matthew who left his tax collecting. Think about the New Testament in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which talks about kind of um, how the rich are to kind of give to the poor. So um, there's actually another element of the gospel uh, mm. as well, which I think is is underplayed mm. in, the, in the contemporary culture because we think our hope is in this world, not in, not in the world to come. Um, if I could say just one other thing about the kind of the Victorian book I've been reading, I, the, I, I was really struck. There was a big church census that was done in 1851, and what it revealed was that the churches were not reaching the working class communities. Mm. It was very striking. We might think that in the Victorian period, everybody was being reached. But actually what this survey disclosed is that there'd been mass industrialization and moving into cities. Um, Anglican churches weren't in the cities because they hadn't built churches. Um, and, and so the result was that very few of the kind of majority of the population who were working class were going to church at all. In fact, they felt excluded from churches because you had to buy your pews and you had pew rent and they were not made to feel welcome. Um, and the thing that most struck me was a statement that said actually the nonconformists weren't interested in reaching the, uh, the kind of the working classes. That both the Methodists and the Congregationists were more interested in the aspirant groups who were becoming the new, growing, burgeoning uh, kind of middle class. And I just thought that was um, a, a kind of a challenge that that had been the situation in 1851, and it mustn't be what we fall into, even in the contemporary environment. So even then, there was a sort of a, a sense in which Christianity was becoming focused primarily on the kind of the growing, successful, um, entrepreneurial middle class. I think one of the things that's encouraging at the moment is the number of initiatives to seek to take the gospel mm. to all different kinds of communities, those that have got a heart to be planting churches, starting churches, and not to be content with simply the growth of evangelicalism in uh, kind of middle-class communities. I'm going to uh, a weekend next week uh, with Ian Williamson, Meadows Ministries up in Middlesbrough. We'll stick a link uh, into the bottom of the podcast for Meadows Ministries, but they're seeking to help uh, churches partner together to reach some of the, the more working-class um, communities of, of the country with the good news of the gospel. So that's well worth uh, checking out. And I'm looking forward to that very much. Um, let's move on really quickly, just in two minutes. Let's talk about a survey that was released yesterday about students. It came from the higher education policy. It says one in four, that's 25% of students are lonely some or all of the time. That is an extraordinary statistic. We should have something to say about that, shouldn't we, as a church? Well, I think that's part of a wider loneliness pandemic in society as a whole. And I think um, a couple of things are going on. We've, we've got increasingly high expectations, I think, of relationships. So therefore, we feel disappointed when we don't have that degree of closeness. Um, things like social media mean that we have an expectation that we can be engaging with people all of the time. Um, uh, we're able to connect. So therefore, when we're not connected, when we're not with people, I think that that makes it kind of feel um, that we are more alone. Social media also means that we can pick and connect with people who are exactly like us. And therefore, we might feel that 
you know, other people who are around us, we don't connect with as well because they're not exactly like us in the way that we would we, we would wish. But I, I do think that um, uh, loneliness is is a real problem. Um, those factors all contribute to it, but it, it's it's leading to an increase of kind of mental health difficulties mm. and, and, and challenges. Um, I think it's felt particularly um, by younger people who maybe don't have established long-term uh, kind of friendships. And you think about university students who are taken out of their home context, out of their connections, they're put into a new environment with lots and lots of people, but they haven't necessarily got deep relationships there. So um, I think that is a reality the church needs to wake up to. Mm. Um, maybe I think as you get a little bit older in life, it's easy to forget what it was life like at that younger stage when you don't have those settled relationships um, it, and connections. It's worth saying that um, you see similar statistics amongst older people. Mm. So if you were to look, at, I've just done a seminar and, and, and done a little bit of work um, just talking about some of the faith in later life. We'll put the link on for that as well, material. So um, if you're over, if you're sort of past retirement age, the number of people who say their main companion is a television is, is just in the millions, yeah, yeah. millions. And so I think there's there are different segments of society who um, tend towards loneliness because of the way society is structured. Students are one, I think mm. older folk are another. Mm. Um, and we've, we've got to help got to help fight that as a church and, we, and we've got got a better story absolutely I, I was at a church at the weekend uh, and I was chatting to some students and they were saying there's chronic loneliness amongst them but one of the things they love about the church is you have intergenerational relationships well do you well they do so, they do where they were and they value it I, I, I think um, I, I think that's the, the church has the possibility of that but I wonder sometimes if we're slightly too self-congratulate congratulatory about what we're able to actually achieve so i i, I went to the seminar i went to did a church um lots of people in the church of different ages but what do you do in church well actually you send the kids off to their group mm. you set the older folks stay behind um then midweek you split by ages so actually what do you actually what, what do you do as a church that is multi-generational I, I think actually it's more difficult than we think mm. and we assume that just because we look out on a Sunday morning and see multi-generational that we are providing those kind of connections and, and I think actually it's just a little bit harder um, so interestingly I was uh, preaching at Stanmore Chapel um, which is a, a Baptist church in North London just on the edge of North London um, can't remember when it was one day merges into another last Sunday it was and they they've just started a table tennis club and I was talking to the pastor Chris about it and saying, you know, tell me a bit more about the table tennis club. And one of the things that really struck me about it is they've discovered that table tennis is a multi-generational activity. There aren't actually many mm. multi-generational activities. So he said, it's the one thing we do in church where a teenager comes along and uh, will come along and just play a game of ping pong with someone who's 70. Mm. And suddenly actually you are doing something, it's interesting, you are doing something together mm. that crosses mm. generations. Mm. I think actually it's quite difficult to find those activities. So so not, don't want to beat us all up. Um, it's great that churches are a mixture of ages and stages. Um, but actually it is very easy just to siphon people off into silos almost as soon as they walk through the door. Go on. I, think, I think we do need to be not overly negative about church. I mean, it seems to me church is meant to be a community. There's so much in the New Testament about our relationships with one another, loving one another. Church is not just a place where we come for a performance or we come for preaching or we come for the equivalent of a kind of a pop music of Christian kind of concert. Um, it's actually a place where we form genuine relationships with, with one another. And I think sometimes within the church, we 
we lose sight of how distinctive that is. So I think I'm, I'm struck by the fact that people who are new to church are often really struck by those relationships and the friendships that they form and the depth of that commitment. Whereas people who've been in church for some time see some of the failings and the fact that it's not as good as it, as, as it, mm. as it could be. But I, I do think compared to what's available in the world, very often the church is a place of community that is quite distinctively different. But we just need to keep working on that and we need to keep um, in, improving that. I'm, my own daughter is a student at university and, and church and CU have just been absolutely crucial mm. to providing friendship, uh, a place where you belong, a place where you, you are loved. And that's been just so important in kind of not feeling that sort of loneliness and that sense of exclusion. So I, th- I think we need to work to constantly improve um, our churches and their community and the way they minister to one another. We'll see this as an evangelistic opportunity. Lonely people around us need the community and we have so- something to offer. Fantastic. Ping that, pong. It, well, yeah, that might be the way forward. Um, let, let's talk about another kind of intergenerational event that we saw. Uh, we saw multiple layers of Her Majesty's family over the Jubilee weekend. So we had the Queen, we had um, Prince Charles uh, and the Duchess of Cornwall. We had uh, William uh, the Duke and Catherine. Um, yes, he was who, there. Who is both the Queen's first cousin and second cousin simultaneously. <laughs> I think he's also the <laughs> oldest looking man I've ever seen. Um, extraordinary. But just an amazing sort of multi-generational I- event there. Um, Prince Louis stealing the show. I was delighted uh, to see that interaction uh, with the Duchess of Did Cambridge. Did you think royal children would better behave? I just was so. I was just so pleased because that is my <laughs> daily experience. Uh, so that was just brilliant. Um, but it was a great event, wasn't it? But but you said at the beginning, Adrian, it'd just be good to come back to that. I, I feel like I know some of the wider members of the Queen's family more than I know the Queen. Is that is that unfair? No, I don't think so. And I think that's because partly they've lived their lives in a slightly different context. Mm. So the Queen has only ever really, in living memory, been a public figure. Um, She speaks once a year a a speech that she writes. Otherwise, it's tiny snippets that you hear. I mean, famously, we know that she puts a breakfast cereal in a Tupperware box, but that's basically about it. So we do latch onto those things because we want to we want to her to be more human than I think she's presented to us as. And so we love those little details, don't we? Um, and I'm I'm very fond of the Queen, but then I think, what am I fond of? I'm I'm fond of my my impression of the Queen. I mm, think mm. rather than her as a person. So there is a there is a remove, and I think we need to recognise that mm. that we don't really know what what she's thinking and what who she, who she is as a person. Mm. It's interesting that when we know a little bit more about members of the royal family, like for example Prince Charles, who's spoken on a whole variety of areas and revealed his kind of personal opinions, mm. actually that re- results in criticism yeah. um, for the position for the position that he that he holds. Um, and I think with with the Queen, it's it's interesting. There have been moments at which you've seen glimpses of the kind of reality behind the public figure. Occasion, there's the very famous 1960s kind of royal family documentary which was orchestrated by the Duke of Edinburgh with the kind of cameras going behind and showing family life, which was only ever shown once mm-hmm. um, because in some ways it removed a little bit of that mystique of monarchy and showed a humanity uh, kind of behind it. Um, and I, I was really stuck. I watched a, a programme on BBC, which, uh, which was a kind of a, a sort of snippets of the Queen's own home videos from over the years, really covering the period from her birth to the point at which she became Queen. And again, you just got this very different glimpse mm-hmm of life and family relationships and having fun and doing things. Um, it's a kind of, as it were, a drawing back of, of the veil. Mm. But I think the Queen, inevitably, because of her role, there's a sense in which she has to be transcendent and distant rather than as knowing the kind of inner person, um, as it were. And she has to have that degree of a personal neutrality. 
And I think it's quite striking that that kind of just reflects on um, our knowledge of God and what God is like. Mm. Because I think in the Bible, God is obviously the supreme sovereign who reigns. And there's a sense in which God is unknowable because he is so much greater than us. We, we um, in a sense, cannot fully comprehend uh, who he is. But yet at the same time, he has revealed himself to us in a way that is true, in a way that is sufficient. Mm. So as we read God's word, as we read about his actions in history, we know what he's like, we know what his character is like. We were thinking at FIEC Trust Board this week about kind of Exodus 34 and the way God revealed his kind of um, glory to Moses. And he declared himself as the God of steadfast love, the God who's compassionate and forgiving, but yet also the God who punishes sin to the third and fourth mm. generations. And there, there is God making himself known in a way that means that we can genuinely know him um, in a way that's true, um, albeit not full. So with the Queen, I think we don't we don't quite know who she is. We don't quite know whether the, the public figure is matched by the reality behind the scenes. But the Bible tells us that what it tells us about God is true, so that we can truly know him and what he's like. We know what his passions, his concerns, his judgments um, uh, sort of are sufficiently to be in relationship with him. And, and that, in a way, is supremely revealed in Jesus, who steps into our world and kind of lives a human life, but yet demonstrates to us um, what his father is fully like. So Jesus can say, look at me and you have seen um, the father. What a great God we serve. Gentlemen, thank you for talking us through some of the new stories this week. It's been Independence, the FIEC podcast uh, with Phil, John uh, and Adrian. Do rate and review the pod uh, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank Thanks, you. Phil. Thank you.